This morning we will be looking at Romans chapter 7, the first six verses. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. O Lord, our God, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That as we look into your word, our eyes would be fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is indeed none like him. We long to see the Lord Jesus. We long to be made more and more into the image of Christ. And so we are thankful for your word, Lord. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit who illuminates our minds and guides us into all truth. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We are continuing this morning in the second main section of the book of Romans. You may recall that in the first five chapters of Romans, Paul has set forth what it means to be right with God, how to be justified. He sets forth our need for salvation and the provision of that salvation in Jesus Christ. And then beginning in chapter 6 through chapter 8, Paul answers the very practical question that comes next. So what? What does it mean if I'm saved? How do I live as a result of being saved? How do I relate to God because of the work of Jesus? And so he begins then talking about the consequences of salvation, the implications of salvation, and the main one that we have been looking at is freedom. In chapter 6 and verse 14, he showed us that we are free from sin. And we are free from sin because we are not under the law, but under grace. And so what he did then after that point was to give us an illustration to show us what it means to be free from sin. And you recall that illustration was difficult for us to get our arms around because Jesus 
tells us that the only way that we can be free from sin is to be a slave to righteousness. Paul is just following Jesus here. It's what Jesus said in the Gospels, and Paul lays this out very clearly. In order to be free from sin, you must be a slave to God. There's no other way. And so he uses that illustration as an explanation. And now, Paul is going to take us back up to verse 14. So what we have to see is, is that the question that Paul raises in verse 1 of chapter 7 actually follows chapter 6, verse 14. It's as if someone in the back of the room where Paul is teaching says, "Um, Excuse me, Paul, I I get this illustration about freedom from sin, but can, can you go back? My notes are kind of empty here. You need, you need to explain to me what it means not to be under law. Help me out here. And so Paul anticipates this objection, and he begins to give another illustration of what this looks like. Now, if you thought last week's illustration was difficult, we're really going to be challenged with this week's illustration. And you need to do something for me here. If you're the type of person that gets caught up in the details, that when you see something or hear something, you want to know every little bit about it, you're going to get lost here. If you're the type of person that is locked in and all of a sudden says, squirrel, you need to avoid that. We're not going to go down rabbit trails here with Paul. Paul does not lighting the way toward rabbit trails. We're not going to trailblaze We want no flashlights. We're going to stay on the main path so that we get Paul's main point. He's trying to explain to us what it means not to be under law. And so in this text this morning, I'd like us to see three things. First, Paul tells us about a previous bondage, a previous bondage that we had. Second, Paul explains to us a new freedom that we have in Christ. And then third, he tells us how to know the difference between bondage and freedom. Because often we think we understand what the difference is. But as we've already seen in chapter 6, our concepts are not always biblical concepts. And so we're going to look at a previous bondage, a new freedom, and how to know the difference. So Paul begins by recapping where we were. He is going to answer the question, what does it mean to be under the law? Because if we're no longer under the law, the first thing that we should understand is, what did it mean to be under the law? And he wants us to understand that we once were under the law, to spot what that looks like, so we can see the difference in our lives today. And so he says, or do you not know, brothers? We might translate it, You're not really ignorant of this, or surely you know this is the case. I'm talking to people who know about the law. He's saying to us, you're not ignorant of the law. You know what the law is. I've spent five chapters explaining to you what the standards of a holy God are and how we fail to meet them. This is not coming at the beginning of this letter. Now, what does it mean for Paul to say... You're not ignorant of what it means to be under the law. Why is it important for us to understand this? Well, what Paul wants us to remember is our life before Jesus Christ. 
Paul wants us to remember the oppression and the guilt that we were under. He wants us to remember why we left the oppression and guilt. He wants us to see the difference that Jesus makes. And so he's dealing with the negative aspect of the law as a way of salvation. He's talking about the law as a way of salvation, as a way of earning favor with God. He's not talking about just the Mosaic Code or just the statutes and rules of the Old Testament. He's talking about what he spent a great deal of time on in the first five chapters, how people naturally try to earn their way to heaven. What he wants you and me to see, although he wouldn't have experienced it exactly this way, is a treadmill. Have you ever watched somebody on a treadmill? They run and they run and they run and they run. Now imagine that that treadmill doesn't stop. It's always going. You can't set the timer for 15 minutes. It's always going. And perhaps it's always picking up speed. Now I don't care how good a runner you are, there's something that's going to happen on that treadmill. You've seen it in the YouTube videos. You're going to slip and trip and fall and hit your face on the treadmill and skid off the treadmill. You can't stay perpetually on the treadmill. And that's what Paul is saying to us here this morning. If you are under the law, you're on the treadmill. And you can't survive like that. You may think for the first few minutes you can. You may even think you're doing a great job until somebody comes up and punches the incline and makes it go faster. And then you realize you can't do this. You thought you could, but you can't. And what Paul is telling us is there is no way of escape. There is no way of success under the law. You are bound to the principle of do this and live. But you can't do this. And so you have no hope of living. You have no way of shedding the law. The law is actually a part of your problem, so it can't be a part of the solution. The law has already condemned you because you have already broken it. As long as you were living, the law was binding on you. It ruled over you, Paul says. And this summarizes our great problem. Now, what does this look like in our lives? What if... I say to Paul, oh no, Paul, not me. I'm not under the law. I don't need to worry about this problem. What does it look like to be under the law? Let me give you just a couple of examples. First, we never want to admit our failures. We never want to admit that we're wrong. Now this assumes we know there's a standard that we're supposed to meet, but we know we haven't met it. There's something we're obligated to do, and at the same time, we realize we are unable to fulfill it, and we want others to overlook our failures. And so what we do is we say things like, nobody's perfect. Or we look around and hope no one has seen us just mess up. We act as if somehow God is blind to what we are doing. Now, the second thing we notice is at the same time, when we're living under the law, under this standard, we are so often critical of others of breaking the standard. And the irony is, is that we are critical of others for doing the same things that we do and we want other people to overlook. Have you ever noticed that? 
people who play a little bit fast and loose with the truth, all of a sudden become indignant when a salesman lies to them. Or people who are doing the wrong thing, they become angry when they see that politicians do the wrong thing. They're fast and loose with their taxes. They take some things from work. But all these politicians are crooks. They are thieves. We lay our sins upon them. Now, this is a time-tested pastime. I don't even need to give you examples from out there. You see this in your homes all the time, don't you? When one of the children, for example, has done something that is worthy of discipline and mom and dad come up and they say, we've seen you do such and such, what's usually the response? Well, did you see what my brother did? Look at my sister. And if a child has taken the advanced training in excuse-making class, he'll look at dad and say, you know, dad, that's kind of like what you did last week. Whoa. Now we're really caught flat-footed. But you see, that's what we do when we're under the law. A third thing we see of a life marked by being under the law is that we are proud of what we have done. And we want to make sure everybody knows it. You know how this works. You tell the story in such a way that you get to bring up the part where you were the hero. And when you explain the story, you downplay everyone else and treat them a little bit worse so that you can upplay yourself and you can be just a little bit better. You see, this is what we do. We recognize that there's a standard, but we know we don't meet the standard. (coughs) And so we bring up excuses. We try to dodge the issue. It's not enough to have done something good and right. Everyone else has to know it. And this is what Paul has been telling us over and over again. This principle is applied to people who have tried to suppress the truth of God. It applies to people who try to do the good thing. It applies even to those who had been given the law of Moses. All of them were under the law. In every instance, they were trying to earn a relationship with God by their deeds. And the outcome is always the same. It's always failure, sin, and death. So Paul then moves to an example of what it looks like to be bound to the law. An illustration of the authority of the law. So he says in verse 2, For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies... She is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, this illustration can get a bit tricky. Because what we have to do is we have to look for Paul's main point. If we are focused on that, we won't get lost in the details. But if we start to pluck every thread, we will get lost. Have you ever had the occasion of trying to tell someone a story or something that was going on, and they keep interrupting you with sidebar questions? You're talking about a vacation you took, and you drove to the airport, and you got ready to get on the plane. They said, no, no, wait a minute. Which highway did you take the airport? I don't know. I-10. Did you take the toll road, or did you go? I don't know. We went. And we went, we parked, and went there. Where'd you park? Did you park at the park and fly? Did you park at the parking spot? 
does it really matter? I don't know. I think it was the parking lot. Well, did you park in covered? Or did you park in uncovered? And you're sitting there, do you want to know what I'm telling you? So we need to avoid doing that to Paul. He's got one main point he wants us to see here. This is not an allegory. We're not trying to assign meaning to every single detail. It's like a parable. We are looking for the main point that Paul is putting across here. And the main point is this. Our relationship with the law is permanent. But a change can occur that breaks that relationship. You see, what Paul is doing here is he is taking the most permanent kind of relationship that he knows of. And he's using it as an illustration of our relationship with the law. Now, this is our first problem. Because marriage isn't so permanent anymore in our society, is it? We don't really think about marriage as something that lasts a lifetime. We sort of hope it does, but we see so many people around us with broken marriages. There's also a second problem here. What Paul is trying to do is to illustrate that we, as the wife are under the authority of the law. And so what he's doing is, he's following on his biblical advice in the book of Ephesians, that when a man and a woman get married, that the woman is to submit to the man, and that the man is to love the woman in Christ. And the problem is, we don't believe in that anymore either. We've taken obey out of our vows. We don't want any kind of submission. We don't want submission to a spouse. We don't want submission to a government. We don't want submission to a church. We don't want submission to parents. We want to do away with the whole thing. So that makes it difficult for us to get this illustration. That's why I'm tracking it for you. Okay. So we have this illustration through Paul's understanding of marriage, that a woman who is married to a man is under his authority, that that relationship is lasting and it is binding. It is not just set aside at will, but it is not permanent in the sense that there is no possibility of entering into another relationship. There's a reason why in our marriage vows we say, until death do us part. What happens upon a death? The marriage is done. And we are free to enter into another marriage. That's what Paul is doing here. He wants us to see that picture. And this is where we can get confused. Because Paul has said earlier that we have died to sin in Christ. You remember that from chapter 6. And now here he sets up the law as the husband and us as the bride. And he says... If the husband dies, the bride is free. And we want to say, Paul, you just told us we died to the law. The law didn't die to us. Why can't you be logical, Paul? It should be the wife that dies here. If you're really following logically, that's what it should be. Paul says to us, well, there's one small issue here. I don't know any wives who die and then get remarried. That doesn't work that way. When you die... You don't get remarried again. You're dead. And so what Paul has to do is he has to take this illustration and kind of turn it on its side. That's what can be confusing to us. That's why we don't want to make this an allegory. The main point that Paul is getting across here is when you have a death in the marriage, the marriage is no longer and there can be a new marriage. That's what he wants us to see. He wants us to see that our marriage under law is dead. 
and that our marriage under grace can follow. We expect this from Paul. So, now that you have Paul's main point, hold on to it. We were bound to the law. That relationship was lasting and binding. But now we're not under the law, Paul says in chapter 6, verse 14. We are under grace. Now, how has that happened? What has happened is we have died to the law. Severing that relationship just like a death in marriage. We have a new freedom. We are freed by death. This is where Paul moves on to describe the new freedom that we have in Christ. He signals it in verse 4 with his first word, likewise. Now this could also be translated, therefore, or even for this reason. He wants you to see that you're not under law, but that you have been set free from the law fundamentally. You have died to the law, Paul says in verse 4. You're like that widow who's no longer married. Now, in what way are we dead? Well, we're dead to the law as a way of salvation. We have been released from that relationship. And Jesus has accomplished this through his death on the cross. Paul is very explicit about it. He says that we are dead to the law through the body of Christ. He wants us to think about the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Well, what is the result of that death? This is where Paul picks up something from his illustration. It's so that we can belong to another. We can be in relationship with another husband, as it were. And now you can see why Paul's using this illustration, even though he has to turn it a bit on its side... We're no longer bound to the law as a way of relating to God. We are freed, but we are now bound to Christ. He is our new husband. We are united to him in his death. And your death to the law brings about a new marriage. You are not freed in the sense that you are left alone. You are freed so that you might belong to another, Paul says. And that another is the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like in a marriage, you take His name. You have a completely new relationship with all of the blessings and privileges that come with it. Just like in a new marriage, you have a new home. You have new relatives. You have a new status. You have new provisions. All of these come to us in Christ. Now keep with our main point here. Remember, you are no longer under the law as a way of relating to God. Now you are under Christ and you relate to God through Jesus. Now this is not about being freed from God's commands. That's sometimes how we think about it when we hear the phrase, not under law. But I've got news for you. If you were to do a study, the New Testament is about a third to a fourth of the size of the Old Testament. Do you know that there are more commands in the New Testament than in the Old Testament? You see, it's not that we're freed from God's commands. It's not that somehow we float off by ourselves and don't have a relationship with God. No, instead, it is about us being taken out of a covenant of works. Do this and live. 
and we are put into a covenant of grace. Believe and be saved. This is Romans 5 all over again. Now, you remember what I told you when we looked at Romans 5, that if you want to see how good of a theologian a man is, you go to his Greek Bible and you find out how worn the pages of Romans chapter 5 are. Romans 5 is not only the center of this book, it is at the center of all of the Bible. It describes how we are saved, that we're taken out of Adam where there is sin and death, and we are placed in Christ where there is righteousness and life. And what Paul is doing here is just giving us yet another picture of this by means of a marriage illustration. Our union with Christ is with one, in verse 4, who has been raised from the dead. Now, Paul could have described this another, Jesus, in any number of ways. He could have called him the crucified one, right? He could have talked about the resurrection itself. But what he does is he describes Jesus as the one who has been raised from the dead, the one who is resurrected, the resurrected living Christ. Our union with Christ is not just in his resurrection, which it is, but it is also in his resurrected self, in his living self. Well, why did Jesus die? Why did we die with Jesus? If we ask that question, usually our first answer is something like, so that we could escape the penalty of sin. Jesus died, pastor, so I don't have to go to hell. I don't have to pay the penalty of my sin. And then if I probe deeper and I say, well, yes, but, but really, what's at the core of this? Why did Jesus die? And then you might say, oh, I know the answer, pastor. It's so I could be in heaven with God. It's so that I can receive all of the blessings that are mine in Jesus, and I could be at the wedding feast of the Lamb, and I can be with God. But look at what Paul says. Paul says that Christ died so that we could be transferred from the bondage of salvation by works to the freedom of salvation by grace. He says he died to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. You see, our view of salvation is often us-word. It is me-centered. The biblical view of salvation is God-centered. Paul emphasizes the resurrected Christ because we live with Christ and there is a purpose to our lives. There is a purpose to salvation by grace and it is not primarily toward us. It is primarily toward God. The purpose of your salvation is that you might bear fruit for God. Now, this puts the entirety of freedom from the law in perspective. Freedom from the law can't be so that I can do whatever I want. Because that's not the purpose of my salvation. The whole intent of freedom from the law is so that we would live for God. Not for ourselves, but for God. Now, let me ask you this. How often do you think about this? Are you focused on what God is doing in your life? Are you bearing fruit for the one who saved you? 
Because that's the purpose of your salvation in Christ. Now Paul then next shows how we can know the difference of living under the law or living under grace. And again, he's correcting our initial assumptions. Our initial assumption here is that the dichotomy is between following the rules and doing whatever we want. But that's not the difference. Paul instead reminds us of how we lived under the law. And he tells us how we are now to live under grace. And so he first describes our life in the flesh. Now, this word flesh is another word that shows the importance of Bible study, of context, and of understanding meaning within context. We saw this similarly with the word law that Paul has used in the book of Romans. When Paul says law, sometimes he means the Ten Commandments. Sometimes he means the, the, the Mosaic Code. Sometimes he means natural law. Sometimes he means a system of salvation by works. And we have to get the meaning from the context. And this is also true with the word flesh. Sometimes in the Bible, the word flesh means all people. Isaiah says this, and Peter quotes him. He says, all flesh is as grass. Fancy way of saying everybody dies. Talking about everybody, right? Sometimes flesh means the physical part of our bodies, as opposed to the immaterial part of us, our souls. But often, as it is here, flesh refers to the unregenerate part of us. It's not the physical part. It's not that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. No, it is the entire part of us, both body and spirit, that is unregenerate. It refers to that point in time when we were unregenerate. And so it describes then a way of relating to God before we knew Jesus. Before we had been saved. Before we had been given life by God. So what characterized such a time? Well, first Paul says that the desires that we had, the passions that we had, were sinful. Now, passions is another word. It could be a positive word, right? We talk about our passion in life and we want to work in a field that is our passion and it's good and we go after it. But that's not what the word passion here means because here, literally, Paul is saying the passions of our sins. We might even put it this way. It's the desires that we have that get sin excited. That sin knows it can use. It's what we desired because of our sin. And it feeds our sin. And Paul says something interesting here. He says, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. They were actually fed by the law. Now, this is a critical point here. Paul is not saying that the law itself is responsible for our sin. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin. The law is not bad. We're going to see in weeks to come, Paul tell us about how the law is good and holy and just. But what it means is, is that when we were unregenerate, when we were unbelieving, our nature was to sin. That's who we were. And when the law told us what we were not to do, we took that as an occasion 
to rebel. You know, it goes like this. Do you know what rebels do? They rebel. That's who they are. And when you tell a rebel, don't do that, what does he do? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right in front of you so you can see me do it. Because you can't tell me what not to do. I'm a rebel. Right? That describes our lives before Jesus. You remember the concept of reverse psychology? How you get someone to do something by saying, no, no, don't do that. You don't want to do that. Perhaps I think the most famous example in American literature is Old Br'er Rabbit. Don't throw Br'er Rabbit in the briar patch. Oh no, whatever you do, do anything, but don't throw me in the briar patch. You know what we ought to do? What? Let's throw him in the briar patch, right? That's how sin works in our lives. The more that the law tells us that we are not to do something, or that we are to do something that's commanded, the more our sinful, unregenerate hearts rebel against it. That's life in the flesh. And the end of this kind of living is death. That's what Paul said in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. Now again, this is a bad bondage being described by Paul. If even the law of God leads to more sin, and that leads to death, where is our hope? Our hope is found in this great word in the Bible that begins verse 6. But. I think but is my favorite word in the Bible. We have no hope. But. Let God tell you where your hope is. We've been changed by the life and the death of Christ. But now we are released from that law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That which held us in bondage is no more. We have died to it. Our relationship is gone with it forever. But there's a second great word in the Bible. It's the word that comes right after but. Now. Do you see that? This is not something we have to just hope happens sometime in the future. It's not something that we need to work so that we can try and obtain it. No, Paul says, but now. It's something you have right now. You are free right now if you have believed on Jesus Christ. This is also important for anyone who's here this morning who doesn't know this freedom. Who doesn't know about Jesus. What it means is, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, all your sins being placed on Him, all your hopes being set on Him, you can know the forgiveness of sins now. You don't need to wait. You can know freedom from guilt and from shame, from sin and from sorrow now. There's no waiting. There's no proving yourself. You can pass from death to life, from the flesh to the spirit, right now. So what Paul is really describing here is a brand new dynamic. The way that we bear fruit for God is not by thinking we can do things to please Him. It's when we know we're already loved by Him. 
And that He has blessed us with His Spirit and that He can bring about fruit in us. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, Paul says. And not in the old way of the written code. Does this mean we ignore God's written law because it's written? That we should try to find our own way to please God? No. The law is the expression of the character of God. If you want to know what God is like, one of the ways you can see it is in His law. God is truth. And therefore, don't lie and tell the truth. God is generous. And therefore, do not steal, but give. God is holy, and therefore worship Him. You see, the law tells us who God is, and we should long to know more and more of God and the character of God. We're going to see this in weeks to come as Paul lays this out for us of the purpose of the law of God for the Christian. But what we need to understand now is that Paul is telling us we are not under the law as a way of salvation. We need to give up on trying to earn God's favor. We need to rest in Him, secure that He has given us His Spirit who enables us to keep His law. We serve in the liberty that is found in Jesus Christ. He is our new husband. Praise be to God for releasing us from the law and binding us to Jesus. Let's pray.